The following is an original audio series from Sierra International Machinery, Pile of Scrap, with your host, John Sacco. I thought, you know what? What a great opportunity. We're going to have a great time tonight. Not only are we going to do this podcast, we're going to have pizzas, homemade pizzas, and steak. Nice. So we're going to have a good time this evening. So, Jason, thanks for being the good sport that you are. Jason Shanker, the Futurist Institute, Prestige Economics. What else am I missing here? Like I write some books and do some things. Yeah, so. a prolific author of a gazillion books. You, I, I don't read that fast, Jason. <laughs> it's all right. That's what my my mom tells me that. So don't worry. If my own mom can't keep up with the books I write, well, don't you know what? That, I think that's awesome. And obviously, things are well with you. And you've been pretty amazing on your analysis of what's going on. So the very first question I'd like to kick off, and I think everybody, you know, in the recycling industry really kind of wants to know this question right off the bat. Was your prediction of the Super Bowl right? You know, I didn't have a prediction for the Super Bowl. I always go into the Super Bowl with an open mind and wanting to root for whoever I think is doing better. And in the first quarter, I really thought Kansas City had it. And then I watch Q2 and Q3, and I'm like, oh, man, they lost it. They just lost it. And then beginning in Q4, they had all these folks come in with analysis, which I'm good at forecasting, but I don't, I don't forecast football. And they said, <laughs> this is where they want to be. They're you know, point, the, the 10 points behind, and they're going to come back, and they are just going to slaughter them. And I'm like, this is never going to happen. And, and lo and behold, they came back, you know, whatever, 11 points in eight minutes, and they made it look like, like, like a child's game. They just... So you it don't predict football, but you do pro- you do project Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4 of an economy. Well, that's right. All right, so let's let's <laughs> the, this coronavirus. Yep. Okay. People in China dying. Is this real to the economies of the world? Is this a what is this? I mean, I think because this podcast is going to get released real quick within two days of filming this. What's the real effect on the economies? Okay, so let's start first with, with what we know and then with what people are speculating about. Number one, we know that the Fed has ramped up its quantitative easing program again, which started in October, and that sent metals prices higher up until the Wuhan coronavirus became a thing, right? Uh, copper prices, aluminum prices, other industrial metals, oil prices, equity markets, they'd all been going up up until this became an issue sort of in the middle of January. Uh, So that's something we know, right? We also know that the U.S. and globally, there had been a manufacturing recession going on. There was a business investment recession in 2019. I know the last time we spoke, we talked about this. We saw three consecutive quarters in the U.S. of a recession in business investment, Q2, Q3, Q4, 2019. But we did not see it in the overall economy because over 70% of the U.S. economy is people buying stuff and we have the lowest unemployment rate of 50 years. People with jobs, surprise, surprise, go out and buy stuff, right? So most of the economy is okay. We were in a business investment recession. We were in a manufacturing recession. We've been expecting 2020 to be the year that the U.S. business investment recession ends and the U.S. manufacturing recession and the global manufacturing recession ends. And there there was an improvement of the sum PMIs for January, but we're still a little bit below the 150, so it's still still dicey. So the coronavirus is kind of... Pulling the reins in on this horse that wants to run? Yeah, so this is the risk. So as we think about the coronavirus, we think about what we know coming into the year. Should have been a great year, should be a great year still. 
the coronavirus um, adds uncertainty and more for Chinese factory orders, Chinese manufacturing, global manufacturing, less so for U.S. business investment, which is going to be more driven by the Fed. I think it presents less of a risk to U.S. consumption, again, which is 70% of GDP. If we thought people were going to stop buying stuff, that'd be a thing. But right now, e-commerce has become a, a bigger part of the economy. It's still small. It's only 11.2% of retail sales based on the most recent third quarter data of uh, 2019. And what we know for overall retail, if we exclude uh, food and beverage store, food and beverage places, if we exclude fuel, if we exclude auto vehicle parts, if we exclude things people buy at garden stores, like you're not gonna order online bags of cement, right? Like it's never gonna make sense. But if we exclude all that stuff- You don't know that, stuff, Amazon's gonna be in the cement business before you they, know it, they, now that you they, said it. They might be, but you know, if we exclude all that stuff, what we find is that 23-ish percent of retail, of, of like the non, the stuff that's not in those buckets, in other words, every piece of furniture, piece of clothing, groceries, paper, pens, glasses, home goods, sporting stuff, all that stuff that could easily be ordered online, less than a quarter of that is being ordered online. And we know that that's gonna go up over time, right? That's gonna be a bigger chunk of all that stuff. And, but at least right now, it's a little bit under a quarter, which means even if the coronavirus made people lose their nerve and not want to consume and not want to go out and shop, they could still shop, they could on, still shop, shop online, online and they're going to buy stuff. So, so it's less of a risk than previous epidemic risks to U.S. consumption. In China, it's a different story. And this is why aluminum prices and copper prices have been absolutely whacked by these risks, right? They have been falling hard and fast to levels that were similar to before the Fed did the quantitative easing at the beginning of October. And the reason is that is this what's driving the China's copper clamping downturn? it down? That's what's okay, driving so, copper down. Um, I put out so you know on my yep. LinkedIn, I, I and Instagram, I asked people to submit questions because people know you in our industry, and I got one that was from Neil Bice. Uh, he wanted to know about the recent copper downturn, and we will we see it's real. What is the effect of the coronavirus? And I think you completely answered that. So Neil, that was a great question. Thanks, Neil. When you see it, all right. So tonight we have. We have to talk a little bit now without picking a party, Republican, Democrat. We do have an election. We have the Iowa caucus tonight. We don't know the results as we sit here right now. But we have absolutely, completely two different possibilities going into this election. You have somebody who is known as a true capitalist and a couple of candidates who are borderline communists, so they don't want to call it that. They want to call them democratic socialists. Fine, whatever you call it. What's the market going to react? How does the market react going? Does it just people put money on the side and wait? Because it could be dramatic, could it not? So uh, I, I will get to this. But first, okay. let's talk for a second. One more thing I want to say about the coronavirus. Okay. Here's the trick. If people talk it up enough, like the WHO declared this a global health emergency, and the U.S. has suspended almost all the flights in and out of China, most U.S. carriers. Right. And China's under full clampdown, and they're building hospitals for this in a matter of days to, to, to treat this. If everyone treats this as a crazy epidemic that could you know, have global pandemic proportional impacts, ironically enough, 
then it probably won't because everything's contained, everything's treated. So WHO and everyone says, this is going to be bananas. And so everyone responds and then it's not bananas. If the WHO were to say, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Maybe it's a thing. Then maybe it does become a pandemic because everyone's not clamped down. So we're clamped down. So that's actually a good thing, right? Because there's a higher probability if everyone's clamped down that two, three months from now, we probably stop talking about this copper aluminum prices of everything else go back up okay. because it becomes a non-issue because we addressed it at the right time. But so if we actually don't, the quick action makes a difference. That's right. Fantastic. Yeah. All right. So when I was in, uh, uh, well, I wanted to, okay. Let, let's jump back to the political stuff. Yeah. Real quick. Okay. So here's I don't the like deal. to stay a lot on politics because I'm trying. No, it's fine. Not a political podcast. That's fine. Here. And I've written uh, a nonpartisan book on the 2020 presidential election, optimistically titled "The Dumpster Fire Election." Right. And there's a <laughs> few big takeaways. Right. A few things. Uh, number one. Uh, do you know what the number one most important predictor is to whether you get elected president? What do you think? I would have thought it was the economy. It's if you're already the president. So incumbency is the number one thing that determines if you become president, right? Truth be told. Okay. Because incumbents almost always get reelected. It's a little bit higher for Democrats, like around 90%. For Republicans, it's between 70 and 80%. On average, it's between 80 and 90%. But almost all the time, incumbents get reelected. The second thing is, there is one economic factor that does determine whether an incumbent doesn't get reelected. And that's if the unemployment rate for the month before the final, before the general election, in this case, it would be October 2020, because that's released at the beginning of November. So we'll see that when we go to vote. If that number of unemployment is higher than the midterms that we saw in November of 2018, then if it's higher, based on 100 years of data, President Trump would not be reelected. If it's lower, or equal, probably be reelected. Okay, well, all right. Unemployment's 3.5%, right? Yep, and it was 3.7 at the midterm. Okay, I would argue that you can't go much lower, and the reason is the people not working are truly un, almost not hireable right now. There's a segment, and every business that I talk to, every scrap metal operation, every waste collector, every hauler, everybody from oil-filled service out here in Bakersfield, and the ag world, and to the wineries up in Napa, they cannot find labor because what's out there isn't hireable. So how do we go any lower? Yeah, so this is, the, the war for talent's pretty tough. And I've been talking to folks in this industry, you know, most of my clients are either industrial or light industrial. And they're going into high schools, colleges, prisons, trying to recruit people before they come out into the world under whatever circumstances those are. Because you can't find people to do anything Correct. Right Right. So, uh, but so regardless of the three seven or the three nine or how tight it is, uh, in the last hundred years there were only four times where the unemployment rate went up between the midterm and the general election. Hoover, Ford, Carter, and George H. W. Bush. Those are the only four people who were not uh, reelected. Carter lost, in the last, and we know George H. And, uh, and Hoover well my and time. Ford. Right. So, so these are the only four people who were not reelected in the last hundred years. And it was because the unemployment rate went up. Again, big secret, those of you at home, don't tell anyone, jobs matter. So I know it's a huge secret. No one, everyone will be shocked to learn. But as long as the economy is good and people have jobs, 
right? It might, and to your point, it could be an exception this time, but the job market is hot, right? And it people is. who have jobs don't okay. like to jostle the, the so, so in October, I was in uh, Budapest for the BIR, and there was two different economists who spoke, one from Germany, one from France. Both said there's no way, in their opinion, and you said this when we uh, podcast back in September, no recession in 2020. You still feel I did say that. I absolutely feel and that. And how are you feeling in, in that? You still feel that way? No yeah, recession? Yeah, of course. I mean, if anything, things have improved because the, the quantitative easing has been so massively effective. In December 2019, housing starts rose to the highest level in 13 years. That's a big, that's right. a big number. For most, I, I want to say for all but two or three of the last 11 or 12 quarters, housing has contracted. But now we're looking at housing, which is, here's the thing about housing. GDP is new stuff only. So if your home price goes up, that doesn't help GDP. If existing home sales go up, it doesn't help GDP. The only thing that helps GDP is new houses that get completed, that get sold. New stuff is GDP. And if we see new houses this year, that's going to be a big upside for the investment part of GDP. Investments at 15 to 20% of GDP that's been in recession for three quarters. And big surprise, the reason it was in recession last year, the reason we were worried about a recession of business investment last year was the Fed raised rates 100 basis points, a full percent, in 2018, and they started reducing the balance sheet. In October, the Fed didn't even wait for the Fed meeting. They, at the beginning of October, they just said, hey, uh, we're doing more quantitative easing. We were reducing our balance sheet. We're not doing that anymore. Now we're making it bigger. They couldn't even wait like the two and a half weeks for their meeting. They immediately turned it off. That is like giving gas to the economy in a big way. So now you see housing goes up, equities went up, metals had been going up, oil had been going up until the coronavirus stuff in mid-Jan. But all that stuff was going up. Why? Because when the Fed is out there, what are they doing? They're buying mortgages and treasuries, which more buyers than sellers, right? So what happens? The interest rate goes down. Which is great for the economy. Which is great for the economy. And for because people who want to buy new houses. New houses, cars, or companies that want to buy equipment or make business investment, right? Equipment is contracted uh, I want to say two of the last three quarters, something like this as well. So equipment's been in a recession recently as well. So, but that is likely to turn around with lower interest rates because now people see, you know, it's, it's worth my while to go buy new equipment. All right. So one question that was asked is, how is our economy so strong given the amount of debt we have? Okay, so... Right. So I am worried about the debt, but hey, look, we could get negative interest rates and then we get paid on our debt. Now, I don't expect that to happen imminently, but this is going on in other places, which is bananas. And because we have all this debt, we have higher interest rates than places like Europe. And because we have higher interest rates, that somehow attracts more money into our capital markets, which keeps the dollar strong and pushes our equity market up. But it hurts our exports. A strong dollar hurts her. Strong okay, dollar like scrap hurts iron. This is I want to shift to scrap iron sure. right now because I track the dollar, yep. and at a dollar ten under a dollar eleven, usually scrap iron starts lessening in value in the U.S. because it just costs much more for Turkey and, you know, Malaysia and the Asian countries to buy our scrap. Where are we with, with the, the iron market, per sure. se, in that commodity? And we'll get to copper and aluminum, but I've always tracked the dollar in the scrap market, scrap iron market, 
Dollar real strong, iron market not so. So there's two things here. One, if you look at the dollar, over the last five years, it's been one of the most stable periods of the dollar that's ever existed. It's been moving relatively sideways, five years. That's a long time. Dollar often has big swings up, big swings down. And we think it's been moving a lot lately, but it's actually been pretty stable. Now, it's also been stable at a high level, which is part of the reason that metals prices have been a bit depressed as well. The most important thing, though, for the metals side really is going to be global demand and global manufacturing. And in 2019, global GDP was 2.9%. To put that in perspective, you get 3% GDP just from more people on planet Earth. So 2.9 is not great. This year should be better between 3 3.5%. Again, the Wuhan coronavirus, big wild card on that. But the Fed's quantitative easing is still likely to be supportive. And I feel like with the Wuhan coronavirus, the more that people understand, you know, if we look at the number of deaths, right, and we look at something like the flu that claimed 10,000 lives this past winter, that's a big number. We're nowhere near that with the coronavirus. Well, my, I had my daughter left to go to Budapest for a semester abroad. And last week, she had a little bit of a cold. We had the doctor come over, and he said that this virus in the U.S., this flu virus, has killed more people than this coronavirus is ever going to, and we, didn't, we don't have any drama with it. Right. So this might just be a fact that there's a media saying, if it bleeds, it leads. And nothing bleeds quite like some disease that somebody got because they ate some like mongoose raccoon dog that they mixed with sushi. And, you know, like, I mean, this is, I mean, I'm going a bit far here, but this is true. A little bit, Jay, just a little bit. (laughs) This is, no, but I mean, you've seen the videos, right? Yeah. And and anyone who hasn't, you you should. The videos of all the weird animals they've got in cages that, that, that are wild, that they're selling for meat in the same place that they're selling the seafood. And this is where the weird diseases is coming from because when you eat weird animals that people don't normally eat, you might get something, right? Like I think that's why they outlawed roadkill in the US. Right, I just you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> right, and so this is, but, the, but this is, right, that is an interesting story. And if you haven't seen the videos, they're very compelling. And that story sells. And that story makes markets, makes people jittery, makes people react. And then you add some health warnings that are really designed to prevent a pandemic. And now people get kind of worked up, which means even though metals markets could fall a bit more, they may be generally speaking overbid compared to will they be in a few months, because a few months from now, people may be bored of this and they'd be onto the next thing. And they might realize, oh, you know what? The body count didn't stack up. And so, it's not interesting anymore. Moving on to a new story. Okay, the elections. Is it interesting enough to drive a market in right now with completely different? We, we're kind of coming back to that, but... Let's do it. All right. So here's the thing. Uh, there are still a number of Democratic candidates on the dais. Uh, there are a few implications. There are a couple of candidates that markets might see as negative if they continue to advance. Uh, Warren and Sanders uh, have very aggressive tax plans that might be read as negative by equity markets if the probability of them going forward goes up. And by the way, in eight of the last 10 Democratic caucuses in Iowa, the person who won got the nomination. There has also never been a time 
when a Democrat wasn't one of the top three named placers, and, now because, and I say top three named because sometimes they have an uncommitted category, but the top three named people did not get the nomination. So that's what you gotta watch for is those top three named players. Now, I realize someone like Mike Bloomberg who would probably be more positive for financial markets or would be perceived, perceived that right. way compared to a Warren or Sanders, dedicated no resources to either Iowa or New Hampshire and is really focusing on the Super Tuesday. And I think there's a strategy to that, which is what often happens after the Iowa caucus is if you're not number one or number two, usually those candidates drop out. They can't raise any more money. And so there's still half a dozen plus folks who've been on the dais. Um, and I think Bloomberg's probably waiting to see a bunch of those folks fall off. And now you might have for Super Tuesday, which is March 3rd, which is usually the day by which you know who the candidate, the nominee from the party would be, you could end up with a protracted slug. And this would be a thing. Now, again... Contested convention for the Democrats. Well, this it's not the Demo it's not the convention day. Super Tuesday is the day when you have... Well, I know what Super Tuesday yeah, is, yeah. but what I'm saying is they're predicting this, okay, let's say Bloomberg gets some and wins some, this, that, and they go to the contested convention. Is that too much uncertainty for the markets? Or no effect whatsoever, in your opinion. I mean, it depends who the other who. It depends who it is, right? If it's if it's Sanders or Warren, that's going to be perceived a bit more negative by the markets. If it's Buttigieg or Biden, they're kind of seen, I think, as middle of the road from markets. And Bloomberg would probably be, you know, from a market or a, a business investment standpoint. I feel like folks might look at a Bloomberg versus a Trump scenario as, from a business economy standpoint as one that would be probably positive for the economy in either case. Um, whereas Buttigieg, Biden may be more neutral and, and Warren and Sanders would be a bit more of a concern. So we really need to see what happens here and then who falls out over the next week. And that's probably gonna happen pretty quickly. Well, it ought to be interesting. I, I, I think that uh, you have completely different um, ideas of how to govern completely fundamentally, dramatically different from taxes, as you said, with Warren and Sanders, which a lot of people like that idea. And But I wonder if Bloomberg is actually going to split the Democratic ticket like a Ross Perot did when the billionaire really, he cost George H.W. Bush the, the, the election. So, so does Bloomberg it, it egotistically stay in this thing even if he doesn't get the nominee he's going to run as a third party is there going to be a third party could there be a, a third there always could be but do you think that's real or is just no way i think bloomberg's running as a democratic candidate and i think that mike's a savvy guy and i think he's looking at this as the best opportunity to get the nomination is wait until you have people flushed out after the Iowa caucus. Yeah, keep your powder dry. Keep the powder dry and go after go after where you can actually get the big wins. So I think you could end up with a contested convention and then something like the superdelegates become more important. So the thing about the Iowa caucus is it really is a deciding moment where people have after that, it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you're not in the top of the pack, usually after the Iowa caucus, you can't raise money or gone. Now, that being said, in 1992, Bill Clinton got 2.8% of the votes and ranked as the third named person in the Iowa caucus, and he got the nomination. So 
weird stuff can happen between now and the Democratic convention. It could become a protracted battle between Democratic candidates. The longer the battle is, the more donors are going to be, they're, they're probably going to get fatigued with giving the candidates that they think might not actually get the nomination. And meanwhile, President Trump keeps his powder dry for the actual election. All right, so, so. let me, let, let's go through some of these questions. Quick answers, so we could get, I want to get through some of these questions that people put. So, for sure. instance, here's one. Is the domestic market for scrap going to be rejuvenated with the new consumers coming online? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be probably a good few years. I don't see the Section 232 tariffs reversing, even if you had a Democratic candidate coming in. I don't think, even if you had a Democratic candidate, that the adversarial nature of the U.S. and China is going to change. I think there has been a broad-based recognition, a bipartisan recognition, that China is a priority national security concern. And we saw that in Miami in June when you had 10 Democrats on the dais and they were asked, what's the biggest national security risk? And one said Iran, one said Russia, four said China. And that means that if we think about consumers in the US for metal, what are we gonna see for aluminum? What are we gonna see for steel? What are we gonna see for scrap? I think you're gonna see more in the NAFTA region. I think you're gonna see more manufacturing and, and potentially more metals production in the US. All right, that sounds good. The da what was your takeaway from the Davos and the, the, that meeting that they have? What, what's your, is it just political grandstanding in some regards or is there some, something real that comes from it? So one of the biggest things that's going on right now is the move towards sustainability and ESG. And I think this has implications for ESG how- ESG stands for? Uh, environmental safety and governance. And sorry, I'm so used to just saying the acronym. I had to think for a second. Um, activist investor initiatives, both in the U.S. and globally, hit record all-time highs in 2018. And they're likely to have hit record all-time highs in 2019, and we'll probably see record all-time highs in 2020 as well. And in 2018, 39% of those were tied to environmental issues and sustainability. And so the environmental stuff with Greta and the whole thing has really been taking off. And this explains why companies like Tesla have seen their stock price go up so sharply. And Chevron and ExxonMobil are getting clobbered. Right, so part of the story is, if you're an institutional investor, or you're a, a pension fund, and the people for whom you are the fiduciary, you take care of their money, and they say, we want green stuff. You have to go out and buy publicly traded green companies. There's not a lot of them. So what that does is sometimes it might bid the stock price to an irrational level, but you are a fiduciary. You have a mandate. You have to go buy green stuff. So I actually think for the scrap industry, if it plays this right, there is the ability to position itself very well around this because this is a green industry, right? This is an industry where every ton of metal that gets recycled, every pound that gets recycled, saves energy, right? Reduces across the entire metal supply chain, the environmental footprint, the environmental impact. And I definitely think this industry can probably push forward to position itself better on this. Where do you think that should come from? I mean, no, no, here, the reason why I went, hold on. We ran a Super Bowl ad on our social media about recycling pizza boxes, because nobody, not one major pizza company 
talks about there. Everybody's all about sustainability and diversity, but not one pizza company is talking about their boxes that they deliver in billions across the U.S. is recyclable. We ran that ad. We had over 250,000 hits on that ad and comments from people from all over the U.S. who thought it was a fantastic ad. But yet, these big boys aren't doing it. And so my point is, where does it come? Where does the positioning, is it individual companies like Sierra, like our company, who posi who's educating the public that, hey, our, what we're doing does save energy, or is this some government mandate, or does GM jump into this thing, or Apple? I mean, Apple doesn't promote that their Apple box that you buy all their billions of iPhones comes from uh, uh, recycled content. So I think this is a broader ISRI discussion. Uh, so you think or a this BIR is more for, discussion. for Israel and BIR? Well, I, I think it's an industry-wide thing because I, I, I think there's a couple pieces here. But I, I know that institutional investors and pension funds, investment funds, they have a mandate to go out and buy equities that are doing green stuff. They have a mandate to invest in green stuff. There are a number of private funds that have a similar mandate. And there is no reason why those same funds that are, are funneling money into other publicly traded companies that do green things shouldn't be funneling money into this industry as well. And I mean, this, this is a broader discussion, whether at the BIR or at ISRI, depending on you're taking a global or a national approach to it. But I do think the industry should get more recognition than it gets. Because I, I think people just don't understand the impact. I also from the ISRI meeting we had in Austin a while back, everyone visited one of the local MRFs. Right. And I think the average American does not understand the deleterious effects of wish cycling, where I've got something and I want it to be recyclable and I have the little blue bin and I go, I'm gonna feel good about this. And I you know, take that plastic bottle full of bleach and just dump it in there and that's not the right approach. Well, and I, I ruin a load and the whole thing. Well, I, I've had discussions with a couple different people on this exact topic that you on the blue bin. And there's a saying, when in doubt, throw it out. And a lot of people think they're doing their part by putting all this stuff in it. And they're just contaminating the whole recycling stream. So it's getting more expensive to recycle. Yeah. And the, these MRFs, these gigantic MRFs are big million, multi-million, 20, 40 million dollar facilities, and their cost of separating this material is going up to over $100 a ton. And the commodity value for half this stuff is below $100. For those of you non-scrap kiddos at home, a MRF is a municipal recycling facility. Often what's done in a, in a city or a county, and they take the stuff in. And about a decade ago, the rejection rate was about 10%. Today, the rejection rate's around 25%. That means 25% of the stuff that goes to a recycler in a city or a town gets thrown out and put in a landfill because somebody put stuff in that isn't actually recyclable. Inner cities, it's higher. It, it's, I believe it. I be, and people just, they want to feel good about it. And, and so I had this discussion, and I'd love to share it here, because I, and I'd love to talk Please. to you about it. Because I, I asked a number of folks Tell me about that. They said the biggest problem in recycling is wish cycling because if 25% of the stuff you recycle just ends up in the landfill, that's horrible. If you can get it back to the 10%, that's great. And it was, there were a few things they said you should definitely recycle. You should recycle corrugated cardboard. 
you should recycle the heavy plastic, what's called PET, that is for like your pods, like the, the, the fling pods for your dishwasher or your washing machine. You should recycle water bottles. You should recycle anything made of metal, like tin cans, aluminum cans, anything like that. Um, you should recycle soda bottles that have a thick plastic, and right. you should recycle milk loose jugs. milk jugs, and you should recycle loose papers. It could be newspaper, office paper, like whatever. Mail, anything like that, that's fine, and that's it. And the biggest scandal, they told me, that's it, that's all you should recycle. And I've tried to tell this to everyone I can get my hands on since I learned this. The worst thing you can probably do is put glass in with your recycling. Because oh. if you put glass in, with the paper and it gets wet and then it dries, that's actually how you make fiberglass. And it gets hard and it gets stuck and it can ruin the machines that allow recycling. Absolutely. And glass is the number one wear into a box of a baler that gets in there that wears out the inside of a baler faster than paper or metal and glass. Glass. And unlike in Europe where they do separate the glass, they separate it by color. Not in America. It, not in America. And so when you throw it in with everything else, cities want to seem green. And they greenwash what they do. Hey, oh, put your glass in here. But then the problem is what they often have is an offtake agreement with a landfill in another town to just take their glass. Because otherwise it messes up everything at the Merck. So one of the, aside from just recycle those six items... Probably throw out your glass if you're in the U.S. Yeah, well, we have this aspirational goal of zero waste. It's just not real. At this point, it's very tough. I mean, I also find it really weird, and I've had discussions with other recyclers about this, that we don't do more waste to energy. They do this in Scandinavia. They, they do it do all over Europe. Europe. They do this. There's no right. way they're going to allow anybody to burn waste in this country. And that's, you know, and that's, I think that's a, right. We should recycle everything we can. And if it can't be recycled, Turn if it it's energy. plastic, why not burn it? It's already a hydrocarbon. Plastic is made of the same sea chain molecules as gasoline. It burns usually cleaner than coal. The politicians who create so much of this zero waste and these green goals and all this have never worked in a recycling facility. They have aspirational goals that are unrealistic goals. And we're never going to get to zero waste unless we start burning it. And I can tell you, in the state of California, under the current situation, that will never happen. So this is, this is really interesting to think about because if we think about green countries, we think about Germany, we think about Scandinavia. These are countries that do waste to energy, that, that burn the trash that otherwise would just go in a landfill. And I think... It's two things. I think that there should be more information because I didn't, I've been involved with the scrap industry since 2004 and I had never heard the term wish cycling until 2019. All right, look, let's wrap this up. Jason, it's always great. Thank you again. You're, you're the greatest sport. You always, you know, I think your knowledge of how, this, how the economies work and your, your, your way you make your predictions, you're at the top of the list of all your things that you do all the time. One, give us, leave us with one final word for the recyclers. What is 2020 and, and looking forward? Can you look to 2021? What's it look like for this industry? So first let me take it a little further out if I may, and then we'll bring it back in. Sure. 
30 years from now, there will be 2.1 billion more people on planet Earth. Three years from now, people in China, on a per-person basis, will have the same income as Americans today in real dollar terms. 30 years from now in India, people will earn three or four times what they do today in real dollar terms. That's a lot of people making a lot more money who are going to need a lot more cars, durable goods, washing machines, refrigerators, sinks, TVs, computers, cars, all that stuff. Roads, bridges. To get Roads, How do you bridges, get right. Imagine if China, every single person's GDP per person, that level was equal to what it is in America today. It has to triple for that to happen, but that's what's likely to happen in the next 30 years. There's going to be a lot more demand for all this stuff, and we are going to have to figure out how to recycle more. And I think that we also do need to talk about environmental footprint. Because the plastic that just ends up in the ocean, maybe we should be burning. Because that would have less of an impact, and it's already hydrocarbons. So there's a few different things I think we need to think about in the long run. In the short term, I think the recyclers need to be watching what's going on in the global economy. Uh, the Wuhan coronavirus presents some short-term risks. But there's the headline, and there's the trend line. And the headline stuff is noisy. But the trend line is, by the second half of the year, because of what the Fed's doing, the global economy should be improving and we should be out of the global manufacturing recession. That's bullish for metals. That's bullish for manufacturing. As we look one, two, three years out, that's all very supportive for metals demand. So in the short run, once we get past the next few months, I think we're going to see more demand for metals. But even if it were soft for the next year, that demand we see 30 years out that's going to come in quicker than we can feel that's going to be very supportive for long-term dynamics in the recycling industry. Well, that sounds like good news for our industry. Very good. Um, it's an important industry. Like, yeah, everybody talks about doing green stuff. This industry's been one that's been doing green stuff forever. I love it. Jason, thank you, sir. Thank you, Always John. a great pleasure to have you. Welcome home. Now let's go have some pizza. Thanks. We're going to have some pizza, steaks. Pizza, steaks. And maybe another drink. You want to say it? It's been another episode of... Pile of scrap. Got it. Boom. <laughs> so, cheers. Cheers. This has been a Sierra International Machinery original audio series. Thanks for listening. Please share this podcast and make sure to subscribe.